0: you and me now, our one way is total faith and belief in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That he... but C.S. Lewis said that an open mind in questions that are not ultimate is very, very useful. But he said an open mind about ultimate things is idiocy. So basically, it's great to be open-minded about things that are not that important, but things that are of ultimate importance in your life, it is stupid to be so open-minded about. So today then, Daniel chapter 3, we are going to see whether it pays to be open-minded about this kind of stuff, about God and His Word, or whether we're better off being pretty exclusive when it comes to what we are worshipping. So in the words of C.S. Lewis, is that ultimate or not? You know, Basically, do, do, we, do we need to leave our options open? Are there many ways? Is it all right for us to worship different things and different people? Because basically we're all doing the same thing. We're just putting different words to it. That's what we're going to find out today in Daniel chapter 3. Again, as with last week, it's hard to date these things exactly. Some people say that this was very, very soon after the events of chapter 2. Some people think it's a little period of time after chapter 2. But either way, we do know that Nebuchadnezzar is still the king. God's people are still in Babylon. Daniel is still in a high and respected position. In the administration of Babylon, um, as are his friends, who are going to be referred to in chapter three by their local names. Remember, in chapter one, Daniel and the gang were given some local names uh, as part of their reorientation into Babylonian life, shall we say? So they're going to be referred to this morning as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, kudos to you, if you can remember, without looking back chapter 1, uh, their Hebrew names. Where is this happening? Well, we're still in Babylon, uh, but we're, we're, we're probably, most probably, a, a couple of kilometers outside of the city. But still close enough that you can take a bunch of people there all in one go, uh, without it being a multi-day journey kind of thing. Culturally, contextually, at the time, in Babylon, there was lots of religious pluralism it's quite a big weighty term isn't it it means that there are lots and lots of gods all that you'd write with a small g lots and lots of little gods Babylonian religion was very complex very polytheistic lots and lots and lots and lots of gods um, thousands of, of recognized gods but apparently there were only about 20 that were worth worshiping uh, so I read this week. So the people in Babylon at the time, with regards to worship, their salvation, the, the, you know, what comes next when they die, the people in Babylon were definitely keeping their options open. Into this landscape then went God's people. Into this polytheistic, plural mess went God's people, no doubt, ringing in their ears were commands like, you shall have no other gods before me. You must not worship any other god. This idea then of, of there being many little gods and keeping your options open, everything being very plural, and there's many, many, many of everything, was totally foreign to God's people. And again, no doubt, in their, in their minds and in their ears, because they said it so often, Well, these words, listen, Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you can just as easily translate that from Hebrew as the Lord is God alone. So all of that to say, this idea of many gods worshipping, bowing down, submitting, ascribing worth to others was totally foreign to these guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, here representing kind of God's people as a whole. This is a big, big deal for God's people. The idea of many little gods, very plural, everybody's kind of doing their own thing. This was a big deal for them. And for you and me, this, you kind of might, you might try and bring this into today, 2020, and think, well, you know, everybody's got their own religion, but this idea of a religion is a very modern concept, you know, this hobby that you've got that you do once, twice a week if you are really committed. But at the time here of Daniel 3, what and who you worshipped wasn't just a a little weekend activity for people. You know, people didn't dust off a special book one day a week and then listen to somebody talk about it and think, wow, that sounds great, and then put it back on the shelf for the other six and a half days. At the time, who you worship, what you worship, when, all that stuff wasn't just a weekend activity, and and quite right too. It was who you are, how you are. It was the framework through which you viewed your entire existence. So all of that to say, into this polytheistic, plural culture went God's people, and this was a massive deal for them. So do they need to leave their options open? Are there many ways of doing it? Are we all basically on the same path, but just using different words? So we're picking things up after the events of chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. And at the start of chapter three, as Donovan read for us, he sets up this massive golden statue and demands worship of it. And there is the basic tension of Daniel chapter 3, as we've just said, a totally inconceivable, unjustifiable, impossible idea for God's people. Let's worship this big thing that somebody's just made. Some people claim that this was Nebuchadnezzar trying to make himself a god, a bit of self-deification, but it's not clear from what's written here that that's actually what's going on. And we need to be really careful uh, when we make conclusions about what's happening in the Bible when it doesn't actually say it. We don't like to teach from the white spaces around the text uh, in the Bible. When things are not credibly attested to by history uh, as well, it's, it's really dangerous to say, look, he, he's done this because... For example, this is what I mean, you know, given what we learned last week in chapter two, it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar is saying, all right, God, Daniel's God, if you say that other empires are going to come after me and I'm just this head of gold, how about I make a full image of gold and people can bow down and worship that? What are you going to do about that? Where are these other empires? He doesn't say that explicitly, but given what we know about Nebuchadnezzar, that, that's what I mean. So we need to be careful making jumps like that. His motives we don't know for sure, but we do know for sure that he did it. He made this thing 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, uh, 27 meters tall, about 3 meters wide. It's the height of a, an average 8-story building. And it's very, very likely that this was some kind of obelisk, tower, monument thing that was then engraved and carved with images of and about Nebuchadnezzar rather than a traditional statue, given the dimensions of it. I read this week that there was a tendency among Babylonians at the time to venerate and worship sacred stones and other inanimate objects. So, for the people in Babylon at the time, this was probably nothing to write home about. This wasn't newsworthy. For God's people, this is a massive, massive deal. Most likely, then, this thing was wood with gold on the outside, which is a common construction method at the time. But still, this thing wouldn't have come cheap. Nebuchadnezzar's put some money into this. And Matthew Henry said, uh, in a bit of a loose paraphrase, that idol worshippers love to pay for new idols to worship. And in Isaiah 46, we read that those who empty out gold from a purse and weigh out silver on the scale hire a metalsmith who makes it into a god. Then they bow down and worship it. And Matthew Henry went on to say that, you know, even the idol worshippers love to pay for new idols to worship. Believers are too often tight and stingy with their money in the worship of the one true God. Wow. That's just, it's not the main point of what we're talking about today, but it is something to to kind of ponder after today, isn't it? What does your spending say about your salvation? If we didn't know you, and we saw your bank statement, your checkbook, however you like to, 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 to pay for things. What would that say about you? What would it suggest is the object of your worship? Just something to think about. So up goes the statue. Nebuchadnezzar summons all his leaders for the, for the dedication. It's almost like a test of allegiance. Are we really going to bow down and do this? Everybody arrives stands in front of the statue and they're told look hear the music fall down worship worship here doesn't mean that somebody's going to crack out a guitar and start singing a bit of shane and shane towards this image it means that everybody should bow down in reverence physically and mentally put yourself in a position that shows that you are not as good as this thing you're not as worthy as this big thing in front of you, as what you are worshipping, you're giving worth to something above yourself. Nebuchadnezzar then is demanding this big public display of recognition and submission to his absolute authority, as Daniel said last week in chapter 2. And it's, kind of, it's, it's a situation of do this or else the consequence is being thrown into the furnace we read whoever does not bow down and pay homage will immediately be thrown into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire all of that happens arrive stand music fall worship shadrach meshach and abednego don't and they get noticed for not doing so they're not willing to compromise, they're not willing to keep their options open in the God department. They're not willing to be open-minded worship-wise. And then some Chaldeans come forward to tell tales that reiterate to Nebuchadnezzar what was said, you know, look, some guys are not doing this, uh, they're named, they're not giving you proper respect, they don't serve your gods, and they're not worshipping your statue. Quick side note, maybe you're thinking, Where's Daniel? And the explanations for his absence are vast and varied. Perhaps people think he was not there because he was sick. Perhaps he was away on business because he's so important in the administration of Babylon. Maybe he's watching from a distance. Maybe he's just too important for these guys to tell tales on. All we do know is that Daniel is not about to face the same consequences that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. Then, to Nebuchadnezzar's credit, even though he is furiously rage-filled and angry, he gets the guys brought to him and kind of asks them, well, he asks them outright, doesn't he? Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods and that you don't pay homage to the golden statue that I erected? So he checks with them first. He gives them a second chance and he reiterates the consequence. If you don't pay homage to it, you will immediately be thrown into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Now, who is that God who can rescue you from my power? Now, before we look at what these guys said to Nebuchadnezzar, I just want to take a moment and look at what they didn't say in the face of temptation and coercion. They didn't say, well... We, all, we probably should bow down, because if we don't, we'll die, and what good can we do if we're dead? They didn't say that. They didn't say, well, we're in a different place. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians. They didn't say that. They didn't say, if we don't bow down, we'll probably lose our jobs and our income and our standard of living and all these things that we've come to like about being here. They didn't say, well, he's not asking us to deny faith in the one true God. He's just asking us to kind of supplement that with worship of something else. I guess it's not that big of a deal. They didn't say that. They didn't say, look, everybody else is doing it. Must be fine. And they didn't say, "Well, we'll just do it once, just once for five minutes, just to kind of fit in with everybody." It, It, you know, it'd be crazy. It'd be crazy, wouldn't it, guys, to throw our lives away because we're not willing to bow down? They didn't say any of that. They knew what God's word said. They acted accordingly, and they didn't make excuses. God's word was the ultimate authority in their lives, not the excuses they could concoct as a group together they could have said lots and lots and lots of things to justify just bowing down just as once but they didn't and what they do say is so good Uh, read with me chapter 3 verses 16 17 and 18 their response is we do not need to give you a reply concerning this if our God whom we are serving exists he is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will rescue us, O oh king, from your power as well. But if not, let it be known to you, O oh king, that we don't serve your gods and we will not pay homage to the golden statue that you have erected. What a great response. Remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's has kind of challenged anybody, anything, to go above his authority he said who is that God who can rescue rescue you from my power and what he's done there whether he intended to or not what he's done there is Nebuchadnezzar has now made this an issue between himself and God it's not just himself and these three guys he's now made it an issue between himself and God our guys Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego our guys they know that God exists so they're saying to him well Right back at you. Who's this God that's going to rescue you? And they say, Well, they know he exists. They're right back at you, Nebuchadnezzar. If he exists, he'll save us. Of course, he's able to save us. But, but if he doesn't, still not going to do it. If he chooses not to rescue us in the here and now from this potentially fatal situation, we're still not going to do what he has commanded us not to do. And then as you might have guessed, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and his disposition changed towards Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Maybe your Bible says that his face changed. Uh, I don't know about you, I'm not particularly good at hiding emotions uh, on my face. Evidently, neither is Nebuchadnezzar. If your Bible says that his face changed towards him, his countenance changed, it basically means that he was so mad that he looked mad. In the face. He could not conceal how mad he was. He's been shamed and he has been embarrassed in front of all his leaders. Remember, culturally a big, big no-no. And if you've lived in an honor-shame culture for any length of time, And if you're in Bahrain and you're with us live, and you you do, you live in that culture, you know that shaming somebody is a big, big no-no. This guy, the ultimate authority leader guy, has been shamed and embarrassed in front of all his subordinates. He gets so angry. Let's heat that furnace oven thing seven times hotter. Get some really strong guys to tie them up. Let's leave their clothes on. Uh, custom was to strip those people naked who were going to be condemned to death which adds to the shame but this is so hasty and he so wants to make a point because he has just been shamed in front of all his other leaders that he just ties them up fully clothed because this oven furnace is so hot the guys who open the door to try and put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in die because the flame it's so hot that they die and our guys end up in there then we see something wonderful. Nebuchadnezzar notices that something is wrong and he checks, hey, did you put three or four people in there? The answer comes back, three. And then he says, but I see four men untied and walking around in the midst of the fire. No harm has come to them and the appearance of the fourth is like that of a god. So he says, look, I can see four people in there. Nothing's wrong with them. And and number four is like that of a God. Now, lots of different Bibles are going to translate this differently. Like a son of the gods. The fourth looks like a God. Like the Son of God, all capitalized. Like an angel. The fourth resembles a divine being. Now, lots of people read this and think, ah, okay. Uh, Sons of the gods must be Jesus which honestly is not a it's not a bad jump to make but re, but remember please remember when we're reading the bible we need to who is speaking who are they how do they think remember though that these words the fourth is like that of a god was said by this pagan tyrannical ruler who's looking to explain what he sees from his own mind This guy lives in this polytheistic culture. And what I mean by that is that in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar, there is no one God. And there are certainly no human incarnation of him. Remember from last week, uh, divine beings don't take on flesh and walk among us. So we need to be really careful when we put our after the incarnation, our after the cross understanding, onto the words of somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. In his mind then, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, the phrase, like that of a god, is him saying, whoa, something different is happening here. Something divine is in there. Something supernatural. Something not of this world. It looks, it resembles, a, a, it look, kind of looks like a human But it must be divine. And there's lots and lots of talk here. Is it an angel? Is it a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? And we'll come back to that in a minute. And then he calls him out, look, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. They're physically unharmed. Their, their hair's not been burned. Their clothes are still stunning. And uh, not, they don't even smell like smoke or fire. Nebuchadnezzar praises God, says that he cannot be spoken against under consequence of death. There's no other God like him. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get a promotion. So, What does this all mean? What did this all mean to God's people when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went home and told God's community in Babylon, hey, look, guess what happened? What did this mean to them? Well, God's people here, represented by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have been put in a a do-or-a-die situation of worshiping false gods and the consequence is death. Now remember, they've been taken to Babylon, and they've been told by God, look, get on with life. Settle down, get a job, plant some gardens, enjoy what you grow. Have families, uh, because this is all very temporary, and I, because I know what's going to happen in your future, and, and there's, there are plans, there's hope in your future, God's people in Babylon. Settle down and get on with it. But don't forget who you are. Don't forget the standards that I've called you to lift. And as we said at the beginning, this was a big, big deal. It would be totally foreign and alien to them to worship anything or anyone else. They didn't want to keep their options open. They don't want to embrace the idea of many ways to do this worship thing. And they don't want to say, well, I guess we're all essentially on the same path. We're just using different words. They didn't want to do that. God's people in Babylon were pretty comfortable with the exclusive claims of the one true God. Despite their difficulties in following these claims because they're fallen human beings, deep down they knew and accepted these claims. So when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego relayed this to God's community in Babylon at the time, this teaches them, hey look, yes, you can be in Babylon But you don't need to be of Babylon. And when you stand for God, he is going to stand with you. When you make a stand that, hey, look, yes, we're going to be in Babylon. But we're never going to be of Babylon. He stands with you. How encouraging for the communities of God's people in Babylon at the time to hear of this. H.B. Charles Jr. said that when you stand for God, he will make sure that you don't stand alone. Now, please, please, please listen to me here. This is not some kind of magical protection incantation. You, you this what happened for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doesn't mean that you can go out and do some crazy, unbiblical, weird and wacky things and then claim divine protection from the consequences of them because you know Shadrach Meshach and Abednego were saved in the fire it doesn't work like that we'll get to in just a minute what this means for you what this doesn't mean for you is you can't do whatever you like and then ask God to pull you out of the fire so to speak this was three young guys who were prepared to give their lives to live in accordance with Scripture And what God says about how his people should live. This is three young guys who've committed, come what may, to a life of radical, focused, exclusive obedience to God. So how do we get from Old Testament to you now? Well, we've got to go through Jesus and the cross so how does Jesus fulfill or improve or change what happened in Daniel chapter three well we see here that the ruling authority Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian empire wanted to stamp out anything that is perceived as deviant or defiant behavior by punishing it with death Just as these three young guys were miraculously and providentially and divinely saved from the ultimate effects of death. And what I mean by that is that they were put in a situation that looked like it was going to take their lives. They were put in that place for living a life of radical obedience to God's word and will and ways. So too was Jesus. These guys were put into a a furnace, given up for dead. Then they were brought out alive. If you just substitute what I said, if you substitute uh, cross and tomb for furnace, so too was Jesus. His deviant and defiant behavior was telling everybody that God loves them. And that God wanted to be in a personal and knowing relationship with them. And that he was the path to doing that. His message was and is that he is the way and the truth and the life. His message was and is that he was the fulfillment of everything that God's people had hoped and prayed for. That was his Deviant behavior in the eyes of the currently ruling empire for Shadrach Meshach and Abednego their deviant behavior was saying to The tyrannical ruling empire. Hey, we're not going to bow down and worship You or anything you tell us to because we know that there is only one right way There is one singular truth about all of this and God wants us to live this kind of life this radical life of obedience So really the messages of these two things, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 and Jesus are much more related than we might initially think. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Jesus are both saying, look, there is only one way to do this. In this particular instance, it's bowing down, not worshiping idols. Jesus then kind of fleshes it out, colors it in, opens it up when he says, look, God loves you and wants to be in right relationship with you. There's some stuff that's kind of in between that. You know, there's, there are some hurdles to get across. There's some stuff that needs to be broken down before. I, but hey, I've taken care of it if you trust me. So there's one way to do this through me is what he's saying. So for you and for me, we've gone from Daniel chapter 3, we've gone through Jesus, our right way, your right way is to put faith and hope and trust in Jesus exclusively. These guys are an example, a great example of the obedience to the singular, exclusive, right way of doing things that God steps in and says, yes, this is it, to show that this is it and that that they've got it right I'm going to do something wonderful miraculous and save them from this fire as he stepped in to save these three guys from the fire to show that yes this is it this is what this is how things should be this is the right way he also stepped in and raised Jesus to life as the ultimate endorsement guarantee sign wonder that yes this Is the guy this is the right way he is speaking truth and in him is eternal life the parallels are just inescapable the point being made is just too big and obvious it's too big and important a few weeks ago we said that Lazarus was resuscitated by the wonderful workings and glory of God that same wonderful workings and glory raised Jesus to life and in this instance, saved Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the fire. So for me, when we consider this pattern and the parallels and the type and the, this yes, I do believe that this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, a theophany, a physical and bodily appearance of God before the time in human history when Jesus was born the parallels are inescapable the point being made is just too big and obvious for him not to do it personally so what does all of this mean for you today right now well we could get all moral and we could talk about taking a principled stand about being obedient about being submitted and committed uh, to living God's way and and you know, there's, there's, there's truth there. But is that, is that everything? Is that all that's going on in Daniel chapter 3? Is it just one big moral encouragement? Look what these guys did. Go and do the same. But I, think there's, I think there's more. I think there's more than that going on here for you. I think that Daniel 3 shows us that God miraculously and providentially and divinely provides and protects what he has said is the right way. What he has said is his way of doing things. We've seen it in this particular physical example here of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it speaks of a deeper truth that God has provided and then protected a way for his people to come to him. Daniel chapter 3 speaks of the, the truth that there is one way to go about things. And even when that one way fell foul of the ruling empire, and that ruling empire wanted to put this one way to death, God's one way was protected and actually prospered. Right here at the time of Daniel 3, it was total obedience to the law, specifically not worshipping any other gods, having no other gods. You know, The Lord is God. The Lord is God alone. For you and me now, our one way is total faith and belief in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he died the death we deserve on that cross and that God raised him to life. So that if you turn to him for salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, that his sacrifice is applied to you too. Our one way is to believe that and trust that with all your heart, mind, soul and strength our one way is Jesus he is the way that looked like was going to die but through the glorious workings of God was raised to life and stands to testify that look this is the right way to do things, God knows you, God loves you, God wants to be in right relationship with you he wants you to know him and to love him and to trust him and this is how you do it through Jesus. Now maybe you think this is all a bit exclusive. You know, the world will tell you that all roads lead to the same destination and that we're all doing the same thing, but we're just using different words or we're doing it in a different style. But just think about this. If two people get on the same train but travel to different locations, different destinations. For a part of that journey, it's going to look like they're going to the same place. The track that they use is going to be the same. Maybe they're even sitting in the same carriage, but ultimately they're not going to the same place. In reality, they're not the same. Nebuchadnezzar here wanted exclusivity, but he was not Worthy of it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded with the exclusivity of the one true God. We don't serve your gods, and we will not pay homage to the golden statue that you've erected. Jesus then fulfilled this. He said it time and time and again, especially in John's Gospel, chapter 3, chapter 8, 9, 10, 14. This was then affirmed and confirmed by his first and closest followers. And this, then, is where you come in. We've gone Old Testament preview. We've gone Jesus fulfillment. We've gone first follower endorsement. And now we're at you. Your job is to be exclusive with what and who you worship, with what and who you believe, with what and who you let into your lives, Do we need to leave options open? Are there many ways? Do we need to leave our options open? No. Are there many ways of doing this? No. Is exclusivity a bad thing when the object of your exclusivity is Jesus? No. When it is anything else, yes, it is a bad thing. If you're already doing this, If you're living that exclusive Jesus life, great, do it more. Be more exclusive. Deepen your exclusivity. Learn why exclusivity to Jesus is good. If you're not, repent of that right now. Turn away from that mindset that there are many ways to do all this and that your faith in Jesus is just one of them and you've got a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of you. If you you think like that, I'm telling you with all the love in the world, repent of that, turn away from that, and get exclusive with Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said this on the 16th of August, 1891. He said to close If we would be servants of God, we must be believers in His Son, Jesus Christ. Come and trust Jesus Christ and you are saved. When you are truly saved, you will be saved from all hesitation about exclusive obedience to God.